0: Welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys for NFP. And today we're going to review the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or the BCRA, which is the draft bill released in the Senate. It was their attempt at the repeal and replace of the ACA and their response to the House measure that was released a few weeks ago. So Chase, let's start with that. Will you give us a recap of the Republican efforts in the House?
1: Yeah, that's right. So the House last month uh, narrowly passed the American Health Care Act, or AHCA. We talked about that in, the past, in past podcasts, but that really put the ball for ACA repeal and replace efforts in the Senate's court. So the Senate now has a few options when they gets a bill like this from the House. They can take the House bill directly to a vote in the Senate or pass it as is, or they can make changes to the House bill The last option is really for the Senate to rewrite their own version of the bill, and that's what we've seen happen here with the Senate. Um, The result of that is called the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or BCRA, as you said. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he's probably the biggest player here, they released the bill on Thursday, and he's pushing for a vote on this by the end of the week, this week.
0: Well, wow, that so, sounds pretty quick. I know he's known for whipping the votes, but that sounds like a pretty quick effort. Why is he pushing it to be done so quickly?
1: Well, it's a great question. There's several reasons, some of which are political and some of which are practical. So let's look at the practical side first. That's probably more important. From a practical perspective, Republicans want to move on to overall tax reform. That's a separate issue and a separate bill. So they're planning to use the budget reconciliation vehicle for that as well, since that requires fewer votes to get it through the Senate. So surprisingly for some, there is an order and process that the Senate must follow. And if the Senate were to move on to tax reform via a reconciliation bill, that would nullify the health care reconciliation bill for the current year and prohibit the Senate from advancing that legislation in 2017. So that's part of it. There's this order that has to be followed. Also, the reconciliation um, process has to be completed before the end of the current fiscal year, which is September 30th. That's coming up pretty quickly. Congress also has to deal with the overall budget process to avoid a government shutdown and raise the debt ceiling to avoid a a default on the national debt. So that's a lot to tackle in three months on its own. And if the Senate starts punting health care issues down the road a few weeks, that really only compounds that legislative traffic jam if you will. So beyond that, though, politically speaking, um, but also to serve that practical mindset, Congress has a recess next week around the 4th of July holiday. Pushing the vote out until after that recess may threaten support of the BCRA, since senators, they usually head home for those recesses, and they may face scrutiny from their constituents. So I think Senate Republican leadership, um, especially Mitch McConnell here, he views this as in endangering the support of the bill. And they don't want senators teetering on the brink as they hear more and more from those who oppose the bill. So those are the reasons, really, that the Senate, they're pushing for this vote right away.
0: Yeah, and that certainly happened when the ACA was passed. The Democrats went back to their constituents and certainly heard in the town hall meeting some negative impact. But So before we look to which senators are in support of the bill and what hurdles the Senate has to jump through, let's get to the details of the BCRA. What's in it?
1: Yes, great point. We don't want to get too far into this without understanding the bill itself. Uh, The BCRA actually somewhat mirrors the House's AHCA, uh, but there's some fairly significant differences. First, though, let's talk about the similarities, and most of those are where the direct impact is for employers here. Uh, To begin with, um, the BCRA does not mess with the employer or employee tax exclusion for employer-provided benefits. So this was some great news, we thought, especially for employers. That means the tax benefits associated with offering coverage do not go away. Employees are still going to enjoy um, employer provided coverage. The value of that is still excludable from the employee's gross income. So we think that's a big win there for employers and employees. There was some discussion leading up to the release of the BCRA that this was still on the table and that would have had a, a big impact, I think. So welcome news there. Um, Some of the other uh, changes in the BCRA are um, also along the lines of the AHCA um, that I think employers are going to really like here. The first is that the BCRA eliminates the prohibition on reimbursements from HSAs, FSAs, and our HRAs for over-the-counter or non-prescription drugs. That's a tongue twister there. It is when you start throwing in all those acronyms, right?
0: So, so just for those, just to, to make it clear um, mm-hmm. without the acronyms, why don't you walk through that again? And-
1: right. Health FSAs. FSA is a flexible spending account. HSAs is going to be a health savings account. And HRA is a health reimbursement arrangement. So basically what that means is that employees can buy Advil, NyQuil, other over-the-counter medicine from those accounts on a tax-preferred basis. Uh, that was the rule before the ACA was in place, and we'd be going back to that. So I think that's good news, um, a little bit more flexibility. Employees will uh, appreciate that, we think. On HSA specifically... Um, there's some changes that are the same from the BCRA to the A- as compared to the AHCA. Um, specifically, it increases the contribution limit to HSAs so that they match the employee's out-of-pocket exposure under the related high-deductible coverage um, up to IRS limits. Um, so that's welcome. In addition employees could use HSA funds to reimburse expenses incurred after they enroll in a high deductible plan but prior to the actual establishment of the HSA. So that's a practical solution. There's been some administrative issues where there's some delay there in the establishment of the HSA and uh, employees were unable to reimburse some of the expenses there. Um, In another administrative help, an individual over age 65 can make a a catch-up contribution to their spouse's HSA rather than having to establish their own as it is under current rules. Um, So those are some helpful, practical changes to the HSA rules.
0: Yeah, and you see generally that the GOP is in favor of HSAs as a vehicle. Generally, you don't you're not going to have a lot of pushback on expansion of the that vehicle other than you hear from the other side that they're only HSAs are really uh, only good for those that have money
1: mm-hmm. than
0: for those that don't. But otherwise, you're really not going to get a lot of of pushback on any type of expansion of HSAs. Um, but it it does go to count towards a loss of revenue anytime they do expand it. So that's the only thing that I have heard could put it on the the chopping block for taking it out, um, is that you are then affecting also the amount of of revenue that the government could take in. And so speaking of revenue, and um, that takes us to taxes. So, um, you know, all that you said so far is good news. What about taxes? Are those on the chopping block?
1: Yes, very similar to the AHCA in this regard. Um, First, the so-called Cadillac tax that will be pushed out to 2026, the same as under the house's version of the bill. Many were hoping that that would be repealed altogether, but it looks like that will be something the Senate might tackle outside of the reconciliation process. So perhaps still some hope for total repeal, but at least for now a delay until 2026. Uh, The BCRA repeals the health insurance tax or the hit effective January 2018, um, the HIT is currently suspended for this year, so this would effectively eliminate that completely going forward. Again, the same as the AHCA would. The BCRA also repeals several other taxes, including the medical device tax, the indoor tanning tax no more sitting inside and getting tanned, Suzanne, the net investment tax, and that was actually Definitely not that something was that was actually that I do. for me. <laughs> And the additional, that the net investment tax and the additional Medicare tax. None of those were directly applicable to employers, but some believe that those taxes contribute towards increased premiums overall. And that's really a big part of the debate is the extent to which these ACA ta- uh, taxes and requirements add to healthcare and insurance premium costs. Hard to measure, definitely arguments on both sides, but it's something to watch as the debate unfolds. What's the actual impact of ACA on pr- you know, these requirements and taxes on premiums and, t- and health care costs? And will um, the BCRA or the AHCA, these Republican efforts, will they really do anything to address that issue? Uh, but let's get to the biggest items um, of the ACA that the BCRA tackles. Like the House version, the, the BCRA eliminates the ACA's individual and employer mandate penalties. That is, the mandates remain on the books. They're not actually repealed fully from the law, but the related penalties are reduced to zero dollars. So that means employers would not need to offer affordable health coverage to their full-time employees, no more tracking hours, running measurement periods, performing affordability calculations, and all that. Similarly, as U.S. citizens, you and I and everyone else, we don't have to worry about actually enrolling in health insurance coverage. We're not going to pay a tax penalty if we don't.
0: You know, and and they're also taking the affordability and the minimum value out out of being tied to premium tax credits. And so, again, that that takes out the requirement of uh, employers having to track that information. Um, So these these are are huge for the employers and obviously a a good um, outcome. But in terms of the U.S., generally, those were imposed in order to have additional people become
1: insured. Yeah, it's a great point. The ACA attempted to get more people in the risk pool through these two mandates, and um, the House's version gets rid of those mandates, gets rid of those sticks, if you will, rather the stick versus the carrot approach. Um, The AHCA allows insurers to apply a surcharge to those that don't get in the pool for more than 63 days. In other words, they have a gap in coverage. And in some instances where a state has received a waiver from the requirements, The insurer could apply medical underwriting to that individual, meaning they could charge them a whole lot of money if they had a pre-existing condition. That uh, surcharge or medical underwriting, that's meant to act as a stick. Um, We talked a lot about that in our prior podcast, so we won't go into detail there. But the BCRA eliminates that surcharge and that medical underwriting capability. So it leaves a question as to whether certain individuals will actually get coverage. What's the incentive here? Uh, Just today, the the Senate released a new amendment to the BCRA saying if an individual has a gap in coverage, when they go to apply for new coverage, the insurer can apply a six-month waiting period. And we don't know exactly how this will work because it just came out, but I think that's meant to address this issue here of trying to provide some sort of incentive for individuals to have continuous coverage. So six months is fairly substantial. If I apply for coverage today and I have had a gap in my coverage uh, recently, I might not be able to actually obtain coverage for six months. So that's quite a bit. So just to be clear, the the ACA dealt
0: with um, access by requiring employers to provide coverage and requiring individuals to to maintain coverage. The AHCA dealt with it by saying if you don't have coverage, uh, maintain coverage, then we'll charge you more or we will allow um, the carriers to uh, rate their product based on your health status. Right. And now the BCRA does it by a waiting period. And how do you think those compare? Uh, Do you think that, uh, or has the CBO said how that that would compare in terms of whether we would cover the same
1: amount of, of insureds? Yeah, so we did see the CBO report come out on the BCRA today saying that um, 22 million people would lose coverage as compared to the ACA if we're looking 10 years down the road. Under the AHCA, that was 23 million. So it's difficult to know exactly what the impact here is. Um, Some criticized the ACA because the penalties weren't large enough, for example, under the individual mandate. That wasn't the greatest stick to force people into coverage because it just really wasn't that much money that somebody would have to pay if they didn't, specifically if you compared it to the cost of insurance. So it's not totally clear. Um, I think all three recognize the need to have something to try and get people covered besides what the coverage, uh, the coverage itself, Um, but it's, it's not quite clear exactly how, you know, which one of those is the best, and I think that's part of the argument here Republicans versus Democrats, and everybody in between, what is the best incentive or stick to try and get people covered? So it does seem like there's a
0: consensus that we need people covered um, and people to buy coverage, but how do you do that? Um, I have heard of them talking about auto-enrollment. Have you seen anything else on that auto-enrollment idea of making, auto-enrolling people who are uninsured, who don't voluntarily choose to enroll?
1: Yeah, so I've seen that idea floated out there. I don't know exactly what it would look like. Um, that w- was a provision in the ACA, actually, that uh, was to auto-enroll employees in the employer group health plan. In that context, maybe it makes sense because the employer is already there and it sort of has oversight over the employee and is already offering a plan. I don't know how an auto-enroll would work in the individual market. How do you just auto-enroll somebody in a coverage that's there and allow them to opt out. I don't know how you would notify them. I don't know who would be in charge of notifying them. Seems difficult to administer. Very difficult, yes. But it is one thought being floated out there to try and get more and more individuals covered. So um, the BCRA does loosen some of ACA's other rules relating to coverage, and we think that's in hopes of getting more people in the pool, Um, albeit through perhaps a free market approach rather than the stick approach. Um, First, the BCRA allows states to waive out of the essential health benefits requirements, meaning that a state could define EHBs, that's the acronym again that we're using for essential health benefits, Uh, the state defines what that means in the individual and small group. So that could in turn reduce premiums for plans in that state, making it more attractive for individuals to shop for and obtain coverage in those states. Uh, particularly for younger folks, the BCRA allows greater flexibility for insurers to rate plans based on age. Um, so the idea is that younger folks, which you are typically some of the hardest to convince to get coverage since they're usually more healthy and don't like to go see the doctor, they would be more inclined to purchase the coverage where the coverage maybe is more affordable and covers more of what they need rather than just this blanket essential health benefits that they wouldn't be using as much. Uh, The BCRA also makes some changes to the premium tax credits um, that are available under the ACA. Uh, Rather than basing premium tax credits on income only, as is the case under the ACA, the BCRA bases that eligibility on age, geography, and income. So that's a little bit helpful, we think, because costs vary so much based on different geographic locations in the United States. So it's way more expensive to be covered in New York as compared to, let's say, Iowa. Um, So let's take that into account when we're talking about the help that we want to give to these individuals. Um, The BCRA changes the income level to which the premium tax credit applies as as well. You'll see this number. We've we've talked a lot about this number, 100 to 400 percent of federal poverty level. That was the group that was eligible for a premium tax credit under the ACA. But under the Senate plan here, tax credits are limited to those who earn less than $350,000 of, of the FPL, but it also makes those credits available for those below 100% all the way down to 0% of the federal poverty level. So that's a group that currently can't access the ACA's premium tax credits.
0: And, and that's an important consideration because that if we do scale back Medicaid in some manner, Uh, Those are the individuals that could potentially be affected. And if they have an alternative of a premium tax credit, that could ease that uh, burden. And as employers, you may be saying, why do I care about Medicaid uh, program? But as long as we have a stable Medicaid and individual market, it certainly aids the stability of the employer market as well.
1: Right. They're all interconnected at some level. So um, one other thing about premium tax credits, the BCRA adjusts down the actuarial value requirement to which the, the credit is tied. So you hear this um, 70% actuarial value under the ACA. That's generally the actuarial value that uh, premium tax credit is tied to. That's sort of the minimum level of coverage that we think about. The silver plan, right? Silver plan, exactly. That's if we're tying it to those metal descriptions. Um, The BCRA says the the premium tax credit can be tied to a 58% actuarial value plan. So perhaps the availability of skinnier plans, um, that obviously helps individuals with premium costs. On the flip side, sometimes when you get into some of those skinnier plans, although the premiums are less, your out-of-pocket may be higher than you anticipated. And I think we've seen a lot of that under the ACA where individuals get into plans and don't understand what exactly they're going to have to pay out of pocket. So that's a whole nother discussion to get into a whole nother part of the debate. How do we educate individuals as they're buying these plans on what their costs are beyond the premium costs?
0: And this is outside the scope of today's discussion, but one way in which states will allegedly be able to do that are through the state stability funds is they will use those funds to help pay for some assist individuals who can't afford coverage in some manner. So overall, the premium tax credit eligibility regime under the BCRA is definitely a departure from the House version, which eliminated uh, the premium tax credit as it was under the ACA, had a flat tax credit instead um, that was based solely on age. So which one is, is uh, a better program, we don't know, um, but let's... Uh, Find out what you think that we the Senate will be focused on in their debate over the next few days? Will it be the variance in how these premium tax credits are structured, or do you think it'll be something else?
1: Yeah, that might be a part of it. Um, there's definitely debates going back and forth on which one of those works better. But I think the bigger debate is going to be uh, on two things. The first is this idea of a waiver process. Um, the BCRA loosens the waiver process, so it makes it easier for states to be able to opt out of some of the requirements under uh, the ACA, like the essential health benefits, and be able to come up with their own definition, have a little bit more flexibility there. Some people really like that because it gives more flexibility to the states, and they can change things how they want. others what would prefer a more uh, consistent rule across the country. The bigger part of the deb- debate, though, I think, will be centered on Medicaid, and rolling back the ACA's Medicaid expansion. The Senate version of the bill here rolls it back gradually from 2021 to 2024, and then changes the funding mechanism going forward for Medicaid um, by essentially limiting what the federal government would uh, contribute to the states when it comes to operating Medicaid. So that's the big debate here. Part of the challenge for a lot of the senators, especially those in states where Medicaid was expanded, is that now you have the expansion, you have individuals, real people who enrolled in Medicaid and are receiving coverage, and now you have to go back to them and talk to, talk to them about how they're going to be losing that coverage, and all those that fall in between the cracks there that would have been covered under the ACA's Medicaid expansion who won't going, fo- going forward. How do we deal with those? And so that's where you see a lot of these senators coming out and saying, this is, this is difficult for us to support. We need to figure out how we, can, um, how we can manage these individuals and how we can continue Medicaid because it's viewed as, um, you know, some people view it as a very successful system and don't want to scale it back like that. So that's where I think you'll see the biggest part of the debate. That's already where we've seen several senators Come out and say I can't support this bill until we figure out something to do with uh, Medicaid expansion. There, agreed. That is uh,
0: Medicaid seems to be the sticking point for many, and really it gets to the to the heart of the issue of the entire health reform efforts of how do we cover those individuals who are uninsured and can't afford healthcare generally. So, what else do you think we should keep our eye on over the next few days aside from um, Medicaid?
1: Yeah. So a couple other things. One has to do with abortion. And I bring this up just because you will hear this as part of the debate. Um, The BCRA does not allow premium tax credits to be applied to plans that cover abortion. And so that's become a hot button item. Um, And then the last thing to think about here is even if this gets past the Senate, even if they resolve all the issues on Medicaid and the individual market, and get past this abortion coverage issue there's still a little bit of a road to go this version would uh, if the senate passed would go back to the house and then the house would either have to pass it as is or enter back into some negotiations in the house and send another version back to the senate or it's possible that the the two the, the leadership in the two chambers gets together and discusses what they think should be in a final bill and then the two uh, chambers pass their own versions of an identical bill, which would then go to President Trump. So, quite a bit to work on, or still to be worked through, even if it passes. Uh, but we'll see what happens in the next few days. It's
0: uh, going to be an entertaining week, that's for sure. So, we, we could be having a very different discussion in our next podcast. We may um, have uh, healthcare reform um, ending as this week uh, for the for the near future, and we may be on to other things, such as tax reform. But nonetheless, this was a very good discussion, very timely, and I'm sure we'll be having another one very shortly. Um, so with that, we will end our podcast for today, as we always do. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you, Chase. Thanks
1: for joining us.